All right, everybody. Welcome back to another episode of Stories from Mountain Town. This is your host, Tyler. And today with me, I have the artist formerly known as Borbe. <laughs> Borbe, welcome to the show. Uh, thank you for having me, Tyler. Appreciate it. Awesome. Um, could you tell the nice people a little bit about yourself? Yeah. Uh, where to start? Um, yeah. I So I grew up on Long Island and I went to college in Boston. Then I moved to New York City and spent 13 years there. And I did everything from reality TV to stand-up comedy. I worked at the Trump Organization on the same floor with the former president. Uh, then I went into recruiting and then I went into advertising, and then I was in Hawaii with my then-girlfriend, now-wife, realizing I wasn't living my true life. So I decided to leave it all behind, become an artist. Uh, so I became a full-time artist on July 2nd of 2009. Awesome. Um, never been represented by a gallery, never had an art dealer, just studied all myself. And uh, a fortuitous commission brought me out to the Tetons and mm -hmm. uh, fell in love, and we made our way out here. We've been in Victor, Idaho since 2016. That's awesome. You've done a lot of stuff. Yeah, I like to pride myself on having a very strange and diverse background. Yeah, that's fantastic. Um, so what you're most known as is being a you're a painter, right? That's Correct. your medium. Yeah. And um, I got connected with you or just saw you through Jackson Hole Stillworks, Chaz and Trav. Um, you've been you were a past um, Spirit of Wyoming contest winner, right? 2017. Correct. Yeah. And it was, I love, I just, I was just looking it up a second ago. It's the jackalope in front of the Tetons. That's right. Such a great piece. It was awesome. Yeah. You know, I know, I know a lot of the diehard loyalists are like, oh, here's this guy from New York doing a jackalope in front of the Tetons. But I mean, I just, it was just so whimsical and I had to go for it. And, uh, Chaz and Travis are like family. I love yeah. those guys. I play hockey with Travis. They're just amazing dudes. And, you know, that we got connected to them is uh, no surprise at all. Yeah. Was he there tonight? Oh, no, no, no. So he's on my team over in Victor, and yeah. I was playing on a team called the Sawzalls over in Jackson tonight. Oh, okay. Cool. Are there a lot of, like, is it like men's league, kind of like beer league, or is it like pretty competitive? 100% beer league. Uh, it is competitive. Um, mm -hmm. You know, a lot of guys, when they step down from playing on the moose, they'll jump on a team. But, like, the better guys here, like, everybody in the Tetons are, like, incredibly fit, so they're all really yeah. good. Yeah. You know, and we played tonight against a guy named Wes, and Wes is, like, probably 6'7", uh -huh. and then you put him on skates, and he's 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 a giant man. And so, you know, yeah. even if I try to full tilt the skate into him, I just bounce right off of him, you know? Yeah. Um, but it, no, it's great hockey. It's beer league. You know, we have uh, we have a fun league over in Victor at mm -hmm. Cotler Arena, and we play over at Snow King here in Jackson. Yeah, awesome. A lot of those dudes from the Moose, like ninety percent of the team is from Minnesota. That's right. They're all like they're like dudes that grew up like around when I where I grew up, and like I like I text my but my buddies from home who did play hockey, and they're like, oh yeah, I played with him on this whatever traveling team thing. Oh yeah, well like Drew is just a superstar on the team, goal yeah. scoring machine, and yeah, you know I know you're from Minnesota. Um, my wife's from Minnesota, and yeah. we got married in her parents' backyard, so I have a lot of good connections back there, and uh, I've gotten to do some cool things through my brother-in-law, also named Jason, and uh, yeah, go go see some amazing games and yeah. big sports out there. Yeah, definitely, definitely. Um. So let's tell them what we're drinking today. Yes, um, it's of course. Kind of part of it. So Snake River, Snake River Brewing, we're doing more of those specialty release mm. beers we had last time. And I think they actually named them. I saw them make a social media post and they named it something. And they, um, but fantastic. And I think even um, the local is selling it somehow, Excellent. which I was confused about because they said they couldn't sell it because of this label. But either way, go check them out. Um, they're still in renovation. 
There, have you seen the renovation at all? You know, I haven't seen the renovation. In fact, last time I went over there, I wanted to grab some stuff. They were closed. I was heartbroken. But uh, so Paco is my favorite beer of all time. Yeah. And you got some here. Paco's is tight. So what happened was I was visiting with this collector. He flew me out to Teton Village to get inspiration for a painting. So mm-hmm. I ended up doing uh, the Cowboy Bar Neon on the Mormon Row Barn with like kind of fractal light in the sky. It was super cool. But yeah. On the second day I was here, Let's just we pull it up. That's what yeah, this is for. That's right. So we went out for um we went out for a, a sledding adventure. So we did an 80 mile sledding adventure. So about 60 miles in, I'm feeling like super confident, which was a huge mistake. So I tried to gun it to like 60. We ended up going down the road like and we came around a bend and I didn't see it. It was a subtle change. No, no, it's it's probably further down. It's this goes back. I'm I do a lot of stuff. Yeah. <laughs> And so, uh, so I flipped my sled going 60 miles an hour and, oh, man. you know, I first, I like, and I, I had a helmet on, you know, and I, I flew into the snow and I was like, oh gosh, I like, am I dead? Like, I didn't know if I was dead or anything. And then I got up and it was up to my like, you know, chest. And so I, I fell out, the sled was slipped, didn't break it fortunately. And I went back thinking how lucky I was to be alive to my friend's place. And, uh, I went and I had my first Paco. So Paco is like not is my favorite beer because I love the taste, but it's also my favorite beer because it was like the first beer I had after I thought I killed myself. So, yeah, it's a, spe- it's a special brew. Definitely, definitely, it's a Jackson classic. So many people that come into town that are my that uh, come to visit us, they bring like a six pack home, or or like if I'm going home, they like bring home Pacos. I mean, if I if I ever moved out of the Tetons, which I don't have any plans of doing that, yeah. I would literally have to work out a connection to get Pacos because there's no. Nothing else really like does it for me, you know. Yeah. And I'm not just saying that. That's yeah. like for real. Yeah. Like, Paco's that's awesome. is my jam. Yo. That's awesome. You're the perf- yeah. perfect podcast guest then. <laughs> Snake River Brewing. Send some to Borbaco. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. Awesome, dude. Your style. Um, and I don't know if we're getting a little bit older. Oh, look at that. Yeah, Grain Belt. Grain Belt. The Grain Belt sign. Oh, you Shout know what's out. up with that? That's awesome, dude. Your style is just so different than every artist out here. Um, and uh, you're now, so I've had, I think you're the, uh, you're the fourth painter now on, right? We had um, uh, Haley Badenhop. Fabulous. Connor, um, how do you say his last name? Lillestrom? Lillestrom, yeah, I think so. It's sweet. I, I spent time in Sweden. I, I apologize, Connor, if I got that one. Yeah. <laughs> um, and then um, Steve Knox, the current label art winner. They're, they're all, they're all, all beauties. Styles. They're yeah. all beauties. But yours, dude, this neat, the way you use like, People who for who are just listening, go look up borbay.com. His style is like he'll paint like you know normal, normal whatever scenes. This one we're looking at right now is a, a cowboy on a on a horse in front of the Tetons. That'd be a normal scene for painters out here. But then he goes and like outlines certain aspects of the horse and cowboy in what looks like a neon light, like so it's like a sign, like a neon sign. This one actually looking like the Million uh, Cowboy Bar. Yes, um, and it's so cool. <laughs> How you do that, and it's so different than so many of the painters out here, and it's awesome. I love it. Well, thank you. I appreciate that. As as an artist, I'm susceptible to flattery. So, yeah, yeah. and I love um, this one is my favorite of all of your paintings that I've seen. Thank you. This, we're looking at it's the twelfth um, hole at Augusta National in like it's 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 is it a famous picture or another painting that from this angle that is super famous. So, uh, so yeah, Hogan's Bridge, very, very famous. Yes. The 12th hole Golden Bell is super famous. And 
So when uh, when we moved out here, we relocated to Teton Springs, which is now the Bronze mm. Buffalo Sporting Club at Teton Springs. It went did through that change? It did. It did. Uh, and they're doing some cool things. It's awesome out yeah. there. And so I was never a golfer. I was the guy who'd go and like go to a bachelor party and yeah. I'd be six holes in. Then I'm just driving around slamming beers and I stopped <laughs> playing because I would be like 12 on every hole and I'm like done. Yeah. But you, it's like you can't beat them, join them. So I, so I got really into golf and I'm oh, yeah. still awful like i'm awful like i've had some good rounds but i could go out any given day and shoot like i really try and shoot like a 110 right yeah um but since i lived there i got into it and i love to paint and i love to golf and so i decided that they had the fall masters in november which was so so rare so i was like you know what i'm gonna paint golden bell so i did it live and i was streaming and that was something i adapted oh sweet so when yeah when covid hit I decided to do watching paint dry, so I was doing live streams from the studio daily. <laughs> oh, that's awesome! And I'm, dude, I'm, I'm, I mean, I'm a slob all the time, but I'm a crazy slob in the studio. Pajama pants, like <laughs> gross shirts, like coffee hair everywhere. Yeah. Um, and I don't change that to go stream, you know. I, like, and I know sex appeal is important. Yeah. And I just don't have any, and so, but I go and I paint. So I was streaming this. And a collector bought it on the second stream out of four streams. And I was like, oh, that's great. And I don't do paintings just to sell them. I do paintings because I'm passionate about them and I yeah. love them. But it was really cool that I sold it. And, um, you know, the collector's a beauty and, like, it's a couple. I love them. And, and it was just really cool to have that painting out there. And, uh, you know, and then so I did it again for this spring. And, you know, I did number 13. I did Azalea. Yeah. And, Is that in here? Yeah, it should be on there somewhere. And uh, yeah, and then the same the same couple uh, pulled the trigger on that. So you could see it all changes, like even from like four or five months down the road, everything is different. But yeah, I mean, I think that, you know, I do my collage painting portraits. I do my neons. I'm starting to do golf paintings. I do a uh, 20 year Guggenheim series. And I really believe as an artist, you have to keep doing different things to push yourself. And identify new styles new capabilities otherwise you're not growing mm-hmm. and what is i've heard guggenheim what does that really mean i've heard of it i don't really i don't know anything else about it so the solomon r guggenheim is a building that was designed by Whoa. frank lloyd wright in uh oh gosh i want to say the 50s 60s i don't remember when it came up and i apologize to the guggenheim historians <laughs> but i uh, it was the first of which there are many listening they're, all obviously they're a legion i know they're like wait a second this guy they're gonna fact check me yeah. they're like this idiot doesn't even know what he's painting we're gonna um, get canceled but we so i lived on the upper east side for years so um in 2009 my first professional painting was of the guggenheim and i did it i used to stand out with my easel on the street to just get attention right so people come over talk to me and then i can kind of network with them and show them Mm -hmm. my work and it's uh it's like a very friendly non-sexualized honey trap scenario and so i did it and i sold it literally my brother i was like walk back and forth and say i must have this canvas because he was visiting and (laughs) anyway i sold it to this family from italy and then i wanted to do it again the next year but it felt too opportunistic so i decided i was going to do one every year for 20 years so it's on 89th and 5th. It's a Frank Lloyd Wright masterpiece. He did the Falling uh, Waterhouse out in Pennsylvania. Like, just prolific, incredible, very unique architect. So, yeah, yeah I'm coming up on year 13. What's more lucky than the year after COVID than to do your 13th painting in a series? Yeah. And I don't know how I'm going to paint it. The, the pandemic Guggenheim that we're looking at right now, mm-hmm. I did in one session with my left hand, primarily with a palette knife. And the funny thing is they had an exhibition about sustainable – um, farming and and sustainable growth. So this uh, this shape right here is actually a grow hut, and it's the same color light that they have a vertical harvest. So it was kind of ironic that we had this global pandemic and this major museum on Fifth Avenue is promoting growing your own sustainable food, right? Yeah. Conspiracy theorists, beware. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Definitely. This is awesome. I'm, as I'm scrolling through this, like 
there's so many different ways to paint the same building. Yes. It's incredible. Well, it's kind of like, so that one was really special because this one, that's 2017. Yeah. And at the time, I was the artist in residence at Four Seasons uh, uh, Jackson Hole. Mm-hmm. And so I, was, I would set up every week and do a painting in a single session. And so when they had their eclipse party, I had done the fundamental painting of the Guggenheim with the Tetons, but then I captured uh, the eclipse as it happened. So I had my glasses on and I was doing a sketch with just you know a paper and pencil. And as soon as it was done, I painted it. And then the cool thing was I didn't realize it, but it kind of looked like an arrowhead. And then when I saw all the photographs of it, I was like, whoa, that's cool that it like really was the way it looked. Yeah. You know, and, and, and you look around like artists all over the place just captured just some unbelievable stuff. Um, you know, the owner of Rare Gallery, his photographs from uh, the Cowboy Bar, he was up on the roof. Unbelievable. Just some of the most stunning stuff. I've not seen those. What What's his name? Oh, gosh. Please don't hate me for this. I'm totally blanking. He's like a total legend here. He was a huge, like a huge skiing legend. Like, I mean, absolute, like total stud. And so, yeah, it's his, so it's his uh, photograph and it's, it's just really something else. Like, if that would, no, Oh, they need to update their website. Rare gallery. Click here. Their tour does not work. Their two pages not work. Try the artist's. Yeah. It'll come. I, I, I'm gonna feel like such an idiot for. It's gonna be like probably some photograph and. He's like the oh, famous. there he is! Boom, right there. Yeah, so he goes by Kivy, but his actual name is something different, and I feel like such a jerk for forgetting it. I owe you a beer. <laughs> but that like, one? how sick! Oh is that? Oh my god, that's inc- that's insane. People were looking at the the actual cowboy bar cowboy bar sign with the eclipse like right above the cowboy's head yeah he was right up on the roof and you know and the thing is it's like you know just it's amazing what he captured this is my Whoa, favorite i love this the yeah. people there just like that to me is like complete <clears throat> legend status like and that's at like noon right that was like yes. full eclipse was about noon yeah. yeah it was and the weirdest thing was so we were up at peace you know on the top of the pass or on top of the teton Mal- uh, teton resort or whatever yeah and i just remember we're standing there and all of a sudden you could see this blanket of black yeah just enshrouding the valley and you could just hear everyone i've never heard this in my life just the audible like gasp they were like <gasps> like yeah. but like 500 people did it at the same time Whoa. it was amazing and i just i remember that and you're up there and all of a sudden it's feeling like 20 degrees colder yeah. and everybody's just like gasping and you could hear a pin drop it was so remarkable and my brother tim was there with me it was like such a special moment yeah um you know and then i think like one terrorist over like there was like dicaprio and a whole bunch of guys from mad men and stuff just watching yeah yeah exactly exactly and i'm a i'm a serial opportunist so of course i'm you know jumping all like hey what's up boys yeah definitely leo about a pain yeah (laughs) that's awesome that was an incredible event i was actually i didn't live here then um but i was here the, the week after and it was like so insanely busy because people were all convening here in the valley and then they were like the week after they were like on the way out so like grand teton and yellowstone were so incredibly packed oh you've never seen anything like it and businesses were out of control like you know our local like brew pubs our local restaurants they changed their entire format it was this idea that this was like the great gold rush of the tetons and (laughs) like because it was going to be prime place prime viewing and people just like they literally spent a fortune for it and a lot of people they just didn't see the masses that they were expecting so it was really hard on some people yeah and you know it's like the locals like when you go to your like if you go to snake river brewing like you want to know like hey i'm gonna go sit at my stool i'm gonna get what i want you don't want to get like a bracelet in the parking lot and come in it's like you want to just do your thing and yeah 
you know, and uh, but it was it was just it's remarkable. And if you look at the populace now, and mm-hmm. if this happened in 2021, you know, it'd be crazy. I mean, like people are buying stuff off the internet site on scene and coming yeah. in and just boom, snap it up. Yeah, it's good for my realtor collectors, and I'm very grateful for you guys. Yeah, <laughs> definitely. Yeah, it's a little bit um, as someone who hopes to to own a, a home here some at some day like it's it's a little bit terrifying to hear what's going on and like how much people are uh overpricing the um the offers uh without even seeing the houses and i'm like i could maybe you know i could maybe do a million dollars one day if i like work really hard and save up and everything like that uh but you know three million i don't know you know it's like that it's a little bit it's it's a little bit scary but you know you have to realize something and you know as a guy who spent a lot of time in new york city uh what happens is the catalysts uh, for any hot market are the creatives. So mm-hmm. you have your artists, you have your painters, you have your musicians, then you have your coffee shops, your cool bars, your restaurants. They create a scene. And what happened was like Soho, it used to be like, and I hope this is okay to say, but like it would be like people with one sink taking horse baths, <laughs> like basically just being like, okay, guys, we, there's like 10 of us and they have a 10,000 square foot loft in Soho mm-hmm. that used to be a factory where you could probably get shot walking outside. <laughs> But all of a sudden, you get the classic gentrification, and yeah. everybody moves in, and people start recognizing the property value. They buy it up. They push the artists out, and that's how the artists in New York created Brooklyn, and mm-hmm. then they created Queens, and then eventually, they're pushing them out to upstate New York. And But no matter what, follow the artists. You follow the creatives. You follow the people who are uh, inspired entrepreneurs. So all this to say is that no matter what, you'll find a place and that place will be awesome. Mm-hmm. And once you get a lot of people coming in buying and it's just people who just have a lot of money and they want second or third homes, that's fine. They worked hard for it. They're entitled to it. But you mm-hmm. know what? The cool places are always going to be where the creatives are. Yeah, definitely. Well said. Um, let's let's pull it back to when you decided uh, to follow your calling and be a painter. Mm-hmm. Did you... Had you like done some stuff on the side as like a hobby before that or like out of the blue, you're just like, I need to figure out how to paint because I think I want to do it. Like, how did that go? You know, I, I'm seeing it in my kids. So I, I have a four year old, uh, six and a seven year old and um, I'm seeing it with them. It was the same for me. My mom was in an uh, art school dropout and then became a school nurse. She was like competitive aerobic instructor. She was on the crystal light tournament and stuff on TV. It was awesome. Oh. Rad woman. And she got me into painting very early. Uh-huh. And I, I, the first thing I ever painted, I was like two years old and I painted a wooden bunny. And that kind of set off a chain of events that just changed my life. Like I was all about just painting and drawing. And, and most of my school years, all the way through college from elementary school, I would get better grades because I do like a wicked drawing or a painting with it. And it's like, eh, the paper's garbage, but great illustrations, B minus, you know? And yeah. I'm like, yeah. yeah. Uh, so I loved it in sixth grade. Um, uh, no, in ninth grade, I talked my way into the um, AP art class. And my teacher, Ms. Livesey, was literally changed my life. I was doing figure drawings at live figure drawings with models at 13. Um, I took the AP art exam in 11th grade, 12th grade. Um, she had us meet with all these counselors from different art schools, and it was just incredible. Um, I went to school for athletics, so I ran um, cross-country, indoor, and outdoor track at Boston University. Nice. So I went for – I wanted to be a competitive athlete, So, but they also had a good art program. I was looking at, like, Duke, NC State, Tennessee, a whole bunch of stuff. Um, but then, yeah, I, I jumped into the real world, and it's not pragmatic to be a painter. And, mm-hmm. you know, especially when I graduated, I mean – when I matriculated, they were giving signing bonuses to graphic designers because I have a Bachelor of Fine Arts in graphic design. And um, and when I 
finished, it was, you know, 2002, the bubble, the internet bubble, and you, and I couldn't get a job at Blockbuster. So <laughs> that's how I ended up in reality TV and stand-up comedy and all that stuff. But um, in all my corporate jobs, whenever I was homesick or I had insomnia, I would paint. And I would mm-hmm. just paint, paint. I kept sketchbooks. And it was uh, I was 2009 um, on the beach in Maui with my then-girlfriend, now wife. And I just said to myself, I was painting on the beach, drinking beer, sampling some local produce, you know, and I was like, dude, I'm done. I got to, I got to live my passion. And so I gave six weeks. I was a business director in that agency left and uh, it's been painting ever since. That's awesome. That's awesome. I love it when people, um, there's plenty of people who those corporate jobs are like actually their calling or it fits the the lifestyle they want. All that stuff is great. But when you can, when you can, um, you can go through that and learn what you don't want to do. And then that leads you into what you do want to do. And I think you become more successful once you know the knots, right? hundred percent. Because there's some people might second guess if you were like painting, you're like, well, but like I can make more money being uh, working at an ad agency right now, maybe. Totally. So, so it could be that some of that doubt, but you already knew that wasn't it. You know, you get, you get, uh, I never stayed at a job for more than two years and you get what's called golden handcuffs. You get paid mm-hmm. too much to leave. You become <laughs> accustomed to a lifestyle and you never realize what you want to do. Mm-hmm. Um, but I have to say, I think that the most important thing that is completely neglected in the education cycle today is mentorship. Mm-hmm. And I think a lot of people who are aspiring and they're trying to become great, they do have mentors, but I would encourage anybody in the world to get a mentor. I have one, uh, this gentleman named Robert up in Montreal and I, he's opened more doors for me than I like it, it. Like I almost tear up when I think of this guy, he's like, he's my Medici. He's like been just the catalyst for my career. And yeah. you know, now I mentor a bunch of artists and it's, and I think it's so important because these are young people and a mentor helps you helps guide you through mistakes they've made. They, mm-hmm. you avoid mistakes, you make good moves. They give mm-hmm. you good advice. And you know what? Like, 99 out of 100 piece of advice is going to be great. One's going to be off, but I would take those odds any day of the week. Mm-hmm. Yeah, definitely. I've had I my current, um, so I was telling you, in my, my day job, I sell software to banks for a big mm-hmm. tech company called FIS. Uh, my manager has really taken on that mentor role where she, she's she been at the company for 40 years Amazing. and has been in sales for 30 of them. And so she knows these clients, she's had these clients before in different roles and she knows all the technology and stuff. So like, she's really Kathy, David, if you're listening, uh, shout out to you. Um, shout out to you, Kathy. Yeah. <laughs> uh, she's really taken me under, under her wing. And like, I've come so far from the first day I started under her and it was like right away. It was like different than any other manager I've had. It was like, it was like the day that a different manager said, Oh yeah, you're going to, you're under Kathy now. Yeah. She was like, sent me like eight meeting invites for all these things we were doing already. And she was like, all right, well, you're on my team. We're going to go. I'm going to guide you through it. We're going to kick ass. It's going to be great. Just like, you know, learn and be ready to like jump into stuff. You know, uh, people you love, great teachers and great mentors. They're the just the best people. Yeah. And you know, like I, I, I can't tell you how many, like these people that come along and they're willing to share their knowledge with you. It's incredible. Yeah. And you know, you take that and you run with it. And you know what? Kudos to her because mm-hmm. she recognized something in you. You know, and not only are you working this software job, which is very complicated stuff for <laughs> what little I know about tech de- development, but I mean, here you are, you're doing all this stuff. Like you could be sitting on the couch doing nothing and you're doing a podcast at night. You're running this other agency. I mean, dude, that's, that's the recipe for success. Yeah. 
it's yeah it's sometimes tough but i'm trying um you gotta keep you, you know what dude definitely. You, you just you grind it through yeah you just have to do it man and it's like but it's so worth it yeah. because otherwise like all those hours you'd be doing other things you won't remember them you'll remember yeah. you'll remember doing stuff like this for the rest of your life I know. I go back. I go back and listen to the episodes. Like if they, after a while goes by, and just to remember like the conversations and to kind of do a little bit of say like how did I sound, kind of change change how I ask questions, that kind of stuff, and just be like, oh, you know, I had a lot of fun with that person because um, I've done this would be episode fifty eight, um, and you know, some of them with friends I already had, a lot of them with new people that I just message, like I message you saying, hey, do you want to come on the podcast? And that's that's kind of like why I do it is because if I just messaged you. Maybe you would because you seem like you would do this. But if I just messaged you out of the blue without a podcast and said, hey, do you want to like get a beer and just chat one day? Sure. Like that'd be weird for a lot of people. That's definitely not. That's in my wheelhouse. Yeah. But a lot of people like wouldn't say yes to that. Right. Um, And then because I really like business and I like that entrepreneurship, I can attach it to people trying to do that kind of stuff. Totally. And help them out while also hearing, you know, learning about a new person, you know, learning about a business I might be interested in. All that stuff. It's as cool, like multi-level reasons that I do it. You know, but that's, uh, you know, and the more you interact with people, it's amazing. The one thing I found that was very fascinating is that when I was in all those jobs, right? So when I was in real estate development or when I was in advertising or recruiting, you know, I had to like really knock down some doors to get some meetings, you know, and I really did some grinding, you know, I would, I would call like an executive creative director at a ma- major agency mm-hmm. and it would take me 10 calls to get a lunch, you know, and then you sit down with them and they're very busy and they're like, all right, what do you want? Mm-hmm. You know, and then years later, I'm a painter and then, you know, I'm selling paintings to billionaires and, you know, famous celebrities and they're like super excited to talk to you. And it's amazing. Yeah. And it, it taught me a great lesson about perspective. You know, it's like you can be whoever you want, but if you're not projecting your best self and your most essential self, you're not going to make those connections. Mm-hmm. So the more authentic you are to yourself, the more people are going to want to be around you, which is amazing. Definitely. Yeah. Um, I was going to say, oh, um. On the mentorship thing, I wanted to touch on something. I I got the opportunity last summer to have an intern under me at, at the at the tech job, and I I went into it thinking like, oh, I don't really want to be like have somebody report to me because I don't want to like have to worry about them. But once I got into it, it was so fulfilling to like see them, give them some direction, and kind of help them, um, kind of ha- see the process of them opening up. And this is the kid, the guy's name was Max. So if he's listening, shout out to you too. Um, uh, the way he opened up, because he comes in nervous and shy like any intern would. Of course. Trying to just, you know, not say a lot and just listen and all that good stuff. And then as we got more comfortable with, it, with each other and like he had some success doing the stuff that we worked on, it was really, really fulfilling to see that process. And, um, which I would, which was unexpected for me. I didn't think I would get that much out of it, but I love it. And then we were even at the point in the in the marketing business that we hired a couple people and uh, being able to mentor them and, and get them. And, and so it's a good way for me to look back on everything that I've learned in the process mm-hmm. because you start, you, you think you start day one and you know how to, you know, post to social media, but there's so many little quirks and things that I've now taught Julia and, uh, julia about um just how to do it you know what kind of hashtags what kind of video all this you know content stuff that you don't think in the beginning matters as much but we've learned and it's a good way to look back and be like oh you know we have picked some stuff up as we do this we do know what we're doing and it's showing now when she goes and does stuff with our mentorship and it's successful you know it's huge and and really you know 
everybody who is inspired and is passionate should really take a turn at not only, you know, being a mentee, but being a mentor and also, you know, taking someone under your wing and actually being a boss and teaching them because, Mm -hmm. you know, you look at your job, like I look at my studio, I'm still a one man operation, like 12 years later. And I'm like, oh, you know, I don't know if I bring someone on, but then I look at all the stuff that I can offset and teach them. And like one of my bosses, uh, Jason, he was uh, another Jason. Jason's all over the place, yeah. you know. Um, and he was um, he was such a meticulous boss. And you know, when I did something wrong, it was a closed door meeting, and he'd walk me through it, and he'd tell me. And he was so on point that I learned not to make mistakes. Yeah. And then I got more and more of a, a longer leash, and I was able to do things on my own, and I became more autonomous because he spent so much time with me, establishing the protocol, establishing what I'm supposed to do. Yeah. And you know, again, you know, it's like that high school art teacher, college art professor, Jason, these collector mentors. I mean, I, I, it's worth more than gold. Yeah. There's some, there's a saying or something about like, um, a good coach will, um, when you do something good, they'll praise you out in the open. Mm -hmm. And then when you do something bad, they'll correct you in private. Totally. It's like, you see, you, I notice it. I, I grew up playing a lot of sports and I played football in college and you notice the difference between good coaches and bad coaches. You're right. Oh, it's 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 stark. And you know, my dad was a track coach for 37 years. Yeah. Steve Borbay, he's in the high school track and field hall of fame. Total oh, total sick. legend. And you know, same thing. You know, he's very fair to his athletes, and I learned that you know growing up. And you know, if I did something wrong, people told me, and I learned. And yeah. I think that's important. I impart that on my kids as well. Yeah, it's, sports are so important for just like development, like. The way that I know now how to lose and come back with, you know, some some more, you know, lose and figure out what I did wrong and get better at that thing and be okay with the losing, you know, it hurts. It, it always stings. Losing a deal, losing a client, whatever, losing a, a potential buyer, like it always stings. But and that's okay. But then it's it's learn it's a learned thing to go back and be like, okay, what can we do better next time? What can I do differently? And then come back around and then, you know, to be better and win in the future. And I think you picked that up. I, I, maybe in like martial arts, you picked that up probably too. But sports is probably the, mo- the most common place to pick that up. I mean, yeah, I grew up. I mean, I played Little League for nine years. Yeah. I played soccer. Um, I played ice hockey. I ran yeah. track and cross country. Um, I still play beer league. I can't run anymore because I'm too fat. But like, you know, it's just I, you know, it's amazing. And you know that you're right. The discipline and and in life and in sports, you learn that like if you make a mistake and you do something wrong in hockey, you take too long of a shift, they score a goal, you lose the game. It makes an indelible mark, and then you say to yourself, "I'm not going to make that mistake again." Yeah. If you make a mistake with the opposing team's counsel on a gigantic, you know, five hundred million dollar deal. You're going to make note of that and mm-hmm. you're not going to do it again. And, you know, failure is the best teacher and yeah. you're going to fail over and over again. And if you're not failing, you're not doing it right. But yeah. when you learn from your failures, you're in good shape. It feels so much better when you failed at something and then go to succeed at it. Oh, it's a beauty. I mean, you know, and you're going to fail at everything you do. And being an entrepreneur, like if you're a creative and you're getting like a Bachelor of Fine Arts, 
schools are not teaching you, okay, you're going to go out. You're not going to get a job. You're going to freelance. How do you not get ripped off? How do you write a contract? Yeah. How do you negotiate? How do you protect your intellectual property rights? Yeah. You know, what are you going to retain through the deal? Is there going to be a resale? If the resale is coming through, are you going to get a percentage? You know, what's going to happen with this? How are you going to deliver it? How are you going to insure it? How are you going to package it? Like there's so many logistics. And I, 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 and again, you know, beyond mentorship, I think apprenticeship should be coming back. Yeah. And, you know, if you're artistically gifted, but you struggle in math and social studies, for example, you know, you're made to feel in a lot of school scenarios that you're not intelligent and, mm -hmm. you know, you, it tends to push you away and you kind of collapse into yourself and you avoid all the stuff that you're good at. And I think that we should celebrate people who have special skills and be like, you know what? You're an amazing musician. You're going to be garbage at math your whole life. Like, yeah. let's celebrate that and let's find an educational path for you and not make you feel like you don't know how to do math. Yeah. That's totally me with like, marketing and sales like i i'm not very i mean i'm decent at math when there's a dollar sign in front of it sure. <laughs> being in sales um but not really accounting but it, but like you know the english the writing and now i'm i've gotten really good at like contract writing but right. I, I can't write like a response to a short story right sure like uh, my brain is like what the fuck is that nonsense <laughs> like i literally at a, at, a, at a class in college an english class where it's like write a response to this guy's response to this story mm -hmm. i was like why the why are we doing this why does it matter what i am responding to this guy's response right like what does that make any sense but so then I, when i got like you know all through you know k through 12 very very average grades like sure. very average the the occasional teacher would pull something out of me that i was found interest in their class but then I got into college and got to do the, my started to do my marketing classes and my business classes. Right. And I made the dean's list accidentally in my last two years of college because they were all marketing classes. I fell into a pile of A's. What are you going to do? Yeah. <laughs> and, and I started to switch from like papers and tests to really good teachers. Shout out to another, another person, Dave Anstett. Um, so my business partner and I, uh, my best friend Alex, we both went to the same college in the same major. So we had a lot of classes together. He let us go get local small businesses to do their marketing do what we started the company to do amazing without knowing we didn't think we wanted to start a company but he was like yeah go like find some businesses and do some shit for them we did it and then that was our grade and we'd like present about it and show what we changed and all this stuff and why we did it and instead while well, the whole rest of the class was doing papers and tests alex and i were doing the shit and then like so we graduated in 2016 and then in 18 we started the business amazing doing that exact stuff yeah, but you have to understand something that, so if you graduated in 2016, which by the way, is making me feel a little old here, but uh, you know, and you're starting an agency in 2018, I mean, that's so far ahead of the curve. And you know, like one of the guys um, that I'm really enjoying doing some, you know, mentorship work is a young man named Creighton. Creighton. And um, yeah, and this kid is a total stud. Like he, he was working with this coffee company and he's always been very, very connected to, um, Gary V and oh, I uh, love Gary V. Yeah, and so he ended up getting a job and he's working for Gary V. Oh, sweet. And you know, he posts on his Instagram the other day. He's like, What's up? Here's me and Gary V having oh, a that's chat. Awesome. And you know, it's like, you know, you look at this and and he's just a guy who's uh he's he's hardworking, he's smart, he listens, uh, and he's able to grow and develop. And you know, you have no idea how far ahead of the curve you are because if you're like two years out of college starting a business. You could start a business and fail like 10 times. And then by the time you get it worked out, you're going to be a well-oiled machine and you're going to still be a young man and you're going to be cranking. Yeah. We're, I mean, we're getting there. We, we face bumps any day. Every day I had to, uh, Heather, I don't know if you're listening, but I had to dump a client this week. Um, 
but yeah, it happens, you know, plenty of times, but it's, it's, so what did you dump the client for? You've piqued my interest. <laughs> uh, I'm sure she would say it differently, but, um, don't incriminate she, yourself here. <laughs> no, I mean, I'll say it to her face. Cause I don't, I don't give it. She's not worth my time anymore. Um, she, she was, when you buy a, a three person, when you buy, when you, signing contract with a three-person marketing agency sure. to do website development, social media, mm-hmm. stuff like that. You are buying, you're not buying like a brand, a big brand or something. You're buying what is in my my head, Alex's head, and Julia's head. And our ability to, you know, uh, do the services that we, that you signed up for based on our experience doing this business for the, the it'll be three years in, in October sure. with other businesses. Um, and she was hearing a lot of other noise from other people and that was conflicting with what we were saying Mm -hmm. and that's fine. Like they could have whatever experience they have, but she hired us. And so just came to a point where like, we've gotten into situations like that where we tried to see it out to the end because we thought we could, there was like a, you know, a paycheck, a bigger paycheck at the end. Sure. It never works out because once they start questioning your belief in how to do marketing, it never gets better. Well, there's, there's an old saying in advertising, and I think it's true. If you give a client three options, they'll pick the worst one and make it worse through feedback. Yeah. And so one of the things that I found you know, with my art career is that I do a lot of work on commission. And it's very important to me that I guide the process so I don't create a monster. So yeah. I'm very, very careful. And this is a, you know, over a decade of experience of mm-hmm. just being like, hey, you know what? Like, so we're going to do this. I would recommend like this composition and let's use these elements because I think it's going to work better. And, you know, got to, you know, you guide the process. But then again, look, you know, I mean, you get a client that is not listening and has a lot of outside influences. It's like, look, if you hire someone, hire them, let them do what they do. And, you know, that's the same for me. I'm like, look, you know, if I'm doing something that's outside of my wheelhouse, I'm like, if someone's going to give me like golf swing lessons, which I haven't done, but probably should do, I'm going to listen to them. Yeah. You know, and if I'm dealing with someone like if I'm dealing with my accountant and I'm like, hey, man, you know, how are we dealing with this PPP loan? Like, mm-hmm. I'm going to let him do it. I'm not yeah. going to do it. Exactly. Um, you know, if you want to talk about painting a picture, I got you. Yeah. But like, I'm going to let you do your thing. And, you know. I think that people have a lot of problems with that. And there's always someone out there who's saying, Oh, you should do this. You should do that. And you know, and you get that with art, you know, they're like, Oh, you paid what? Like, Oh, I I wouldn't pay that, you know, because you know, you're just different. And that's why someone should work with you in the first place because they want someone who's different. Yeah. And there's just so much noise. Like everybody, everybody, you know, in theory is entitled to their opinion and they really think that they are, but like they not, they not, they don't always need to be voicing it in the situation. Right. Like totally. If 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 you were if you were gonna do a painting for me, and I was I have somebody somebody on my on my shoulder saying, oh he's doing that wrong, he's overcharging you, that's gonna look stupid. Right. Like it'd be so silly for me to voice that to you because it it's just like it comes back to like respecting like their that that person's skill the the, the skill that you bought and their experience because that's in in your line of work in the line of work in the this the space that my company is now that's really all there is it's not like i have some army of people that i throw at a client to say you know go do whatever like i'm just the head of the business like no like the, the majority of the work is me doing it right now yeah and you know like and that's totally fine and you're going to find that there's you know clients come and go and you know clients like great clients like mentors and friends and teachers like 
the best people that you're going to meet in your life that come along are going to be amazing. And, you know, and yeah. I, I will say that, you know, you you learn so much through deals that don't go through. Oh, and man. Like, we I, had such a bad one at the beginning of this year. And, you know, like, and it happens. and But, you know, you learn from that and you find a way to just like, okay, then you should do like what they, you know, ad agencies, all these businesses, they do these like fancy business talk like, oh, let's have a postmortem and let's like, uh, yeah. you know, but like you kind of break down the deal and you say, all right, where did this go wrong now? Did it go wrong in so much that you took the business in the first place and it wasn't the right fit because you need money? And when you're starting out a business, you have to take on every business. Like when you are successful in what you do, you earn the right to choose your clients mm -hmm. and it becomes like one of these reverse interview scenarios where it's like at first like they come in they're asking about you and then you're kind of interviewing them and you're like hey you know what like why don't you tell me why it would be a good fit for us to work together you know and it's yeah. kind of like because it's it's a relationship like anything else and like you don't want a like a marriage or a girlfriend mm -hmm. boyfriend or whatever type of scenario to be one-sided it's a two-way street the communication is important it uh, understanding where you're good is important Keep going. Oh, cool, cool. Oh, yeah. So, yeah. So, I mean, like, you know, to me, that's probably among the most important things that you could do when you're talking about a relationship. And, like, you know, like I said, like, I, I look back at, like, friendships that I've lost and, you know, a whole variety of other different things. And I've learned more from often than things that went wrong than things went right. So, mm -hmm. yeah. And this, yeah, this, the two experiences that we, have had that were like kind of negative got us definitely f way closer to the point of like reverse interviewing and it's more of like a we're just trying to figure out will they just trust us because we have really good examples to rely on so we know alex and i do this a lot where we're like okay this didn't go how we wanted it to why didn't it do that what could we have done differently and it's not that we don't know what we're doing because like we have great relationships with Chaz and Trav. It still works with um, the Chaz and Trav, Chaz and, Trav. <laughs> and, um, and and the leaders of all the, of all of our other clients, like they fucking love us. Like, so my stepdad runs our construction company client and they do like schools and hospitals and uh, government buildings, like big shit like that. Cool. And so we're doing like, we, we started with like, all right, we'll teach them how to do social media, Google ads, um, how to do some content creation, you know, content creating calendars, kind of the basics of like doing digital marketing. Sure. Started there. And then we go and we, he's like, hey, you guys do, Alex actually works for the same tech company as I do. Um, you guys, you guys do, do sales a lot. You guys are in sales. Like, you know it but more than like most of my guys because they didn't have a background in sales. Could you guys do some sales training for us? So now we're going and doing sales training for his entire uh, management staff that are interacting with his clients. Great. Um, we did two different sessions of that, of like an hour long presentation. Um, and then now we're, now we're like going back and rephrasing, um, reworking all of their, any place that they have like their services documented and like figuring out a better way to show how they mesh together and all this stuff. So so he he has full trust in our ability to do uh, more than what we even initially signed up for. So right. we're, we're trying to think like, okay, we're doing great here. We're doing great there. We're doing great there. We're doing great there. They all love us. They trust us. We're doing really good to work. You know, why did, why did that person not trust us? Why did that, not that person not let us do the thing that we're having success everywhere else? 
you know what? Different strokes for different swimmers. And, you know, yeah. the whole lead a horse to water type of thing. But, you know, like a lot of times when you start a company, you start a company with one idea and then Ooh. how you connect and what resonates can completely change. Yeah. And so, like, you know, you have this idea. You're like, all right, we're going to be a media agency. But you know what? If you start doing sales training and you're killing it, then it could be an entirely different offering. And specificity is everything. You know, you mm -hmm. go out there and you're able to say, like, you know what? We're a media agency and we have a very strong sales training division. And you go into a company and they're like, you know what? That's really helpful. I mean, I worked in recruiting and yeah. I didn't know anything about recruiting. I just went in and I started in our database, which was like 15 years old. And I started on A and I called every single number <laughs> in the database. Yeah. I got a lot of like, you know, take a hikes. I got a lot of yeah. people reverse trying to sell me because they're like, you're terrible at sales. <laughs> and then by the time I got to D, I had a entirely self-sustaining business running and it's like these brutal things like cold calls how do you do it you know how yeah. do you just relate something you're calling someone that doesn't want to hear from you yeah. it's like hey you you know we could forgive your student loan or let's talk about your car lease and you just want to be like i just want to do bad things to you because this is really <laughs> yeah. irritating and i was that person yeah but it's amazing and it was a huge skill and i'm really glad i did it in fact i think everybody should cold call for a period of their life because they should. You'll have more sympathy for people who cold call you. And also, it's just the most brutal thing. And, yeah. But, you know, so, like, you know, if you guys happen to be awesome at training people in sales, trust me, you can make a killing. I know this guy um, up in New York. He runs his company, FPC, and they literally train recruiters mm -hmm. to recruit people. Mm -hmm. They don't recruit. They just train recruiters. Yeah. And they're extremely successful, and they're, they're wonderful people, and – you know, salespeople need training and a lot of people neglect that. They're like, here's a phone, here's a like a phone book, call all these people and sell some stuff. Yeah. I'm like you need scripts, you need protocol, mm -hmm. you need process, rhythm, pacing. You need to do your due diligence. And today, I mean, everybody puts everything out there. So you might as well yeah. know. I'm not saying call up and be like, hi, uh, I saw that you had a really great weekend at your daughter's wedding in Chicago. Uh, <laughs> that's a really nice country club, by the way. So and then try to sell them something like, well, your daughter's so pretty. <laughs> yeah. It's like, wow, the flower arrangement was spectacular. Speaking of, I have a construction deal we should discuss. Yeah. Like, yeah. So it's, it's a fine line, but you know, I, I think you should just keep an eye out for that because, you know, you build a business with one idea and then the reality of the marketplace might shift you somewhere else. No, yeah, it's definitely something we've considered. It's just, uh, you know, getting it out there, I guess. We would, we were, to we're totally cool, like, doing whatever you, whatever people want us to do that's in it within our wheelhouse, right? Absolutely. Like, if we end up being, if we end up being a sales trainer, we could be sales trainers. That'd be fine. You know, and data metrics, you know, and it's all about, you know, keeping track of what you're doing. So it's like, hey, if we're going to do a sales training project, let's let's just figure out what you're doing volume wise for the past like six months. And then let's see what happens in the next six months after a one month period of training. And if you're noticing quantifiable results that are very much positive, then you take that right to your next client. And that's the yeah. most important thing because people love numbers. They love metrics. They love likes. They love, you know, yeah. hearts. They that's, want an, that's an issue in sales orgs right now. Because they're so KPI motivated, where it's like, but it's not always the best KPIs. There's all these people on on salespeople, salesperson social media, where they're they always make jokes about managers only caring about like dials and um in in my business it's called an opportunity if you open a deal right and like uh, opportunities open and like you know all that stuff because they need to report that up to somebody else who reports it to somebody else who reports it to somebody else who eventually gets to like head of sales who says like oh we're we're making a lot of dials or like you know putting notes in 
when you just called someone and left a voicemail. Like you don't that doesn't matter. Sales is results is a results business. Like yes. the only the signed contract matters. Now, on the contrary though, if that's not happening, you need to have some activity to show that you're not just sitting in your ass. And, right. Right. And that's that's important too. But good sales managers, when they have people that are kicking ass and they are selling things, kind of they let them do they don't need to they're not on their back. Oh, you unleash them and you like just let them go. That's their job. If they work for two hours a day in a call room and spend the rest of the day at a bar, who cares? Yeah. As long as you're crushing. So I'm nodding like an idiot over here, but I actually don't know what KPI stands for. So please educate. <laughs> Key performance indicator. Okay, cool. Because so, I was like I was like kills per interaction. <laughs> <laughs> like <laughs> No, it's just it's just like whatever they pick as their most important uh, statistic okay. or metric that so, they want to follow. So that makes sense. I, I try to make a habit of like asking questions when I yeah. don't know something. I'm like KPI, I'm like, oh yes, KPI. Yeah. Like, <laughs> yeah. So for like, you know, a social media account, KPI would be like followers and likes. Sure. Most important things. You know, it, it's uh, it's funny. I I did a portrait of someone, and uh, it, it's like, you know, it's an anonymous painting that I I can't really divulge details, but it was a prolific person on Twitter, and you know, one of the things I decided was that was it Alex Jones? No, it wasn't <laughs> Alex Jones, and, and I'm not gonna tell you. But uh, so basically, I decided I was like, okay, so I'm gonna curate a lot of the content for this collage painting based on Twitter. So I thought I was like, to me, the most important metric I think was retweets because it's, this is what's spreading the information across the internet, you know? Mm -hmm. And so all the stuff that I did, I curated based on retweets alone. And I just thought to myself, I'm like, to me, that's the most meaningful interaction. And dude, I am like, I've been on Twitter for, I don't even know, like since the beginning of Twitter. And, um, I have only like 2,300 something followers or I don't even know, probably less than that now. And, um, you know, I'm verified all this stuff. And it's mm-hmm. like when Twitter started out, like I would have like 40 followers and I'd, t- you know, put a painting process out and it'd be retweeted by like a hundred people. And now it's like, I put it out. It's like a drop in the woods. It's like, I feel like Twitter became like this, like kind of minefield for, you know, like they just want you to say something salacious so they can throw you under the bus, dox you out and call it a day. And so I'm, I'm like, ah, I'm like leaning away from social. I, you know, I'm 40 yeah. years old. I just kind of like, social's been amazing to me i mean like jack dorsey's a collector and i'm very grateful for that and you know twitter's been awesome i've made a lot of business off twitter it's just yeah. you see this kind of hostility in social and i think that as someone who's working in marketing and social media it's it's a dangerous space because you could say one wrong thing i mean like the raiders that whole tweet that they put out i mean it was like for the yeah. Derek chauvin thing. yes that would that was that was that was very um what do they call that like cringeworthy faux pas it was just it was just tough it was tough it was tough that the person who posted it or suggested they post it because they you we, you know you I don't, I don't know when you were in your ad agency phase or if, the, if social media was around but i know that post is probably planned when the trial started right right two weeks or so before the post went out because they were like yeah. all right like great he'll probably get uh the guilty charge and we'll do a post about it because we want to you know uh, support justice or whatever their reasoning right. was. So somebody had to plan that, get it approved by somebody, create the graphic, which wasn't it wasn't cra- cra- a crazy graphic, but they still had to create it. Sure, of course. Um, probably wasn't the person that suggested it either. Probably was a graphic designer because they probably have a big firm. Of course. So there's probably like five people that had the opportunity to say, let's not do this. You know, I, I agree. And that's what... <laughs> 
made me cringe because like, oh, I know the process that that went through and it still got through. Well, there's a hierarchy. And, you know, here's the thing, you know, it's and again, this comes back to the salacious nature of social media. It's like, you know, any conversation's a good conversation, but I've seen people completely eviscerated like Patton Oswalt destroyed this realtor. I don't even remember over what, but I think his name was Tony Bruster Rusters. I still remember it because I was reading it. and I was like, wow, he just destroyed this guy. <laughs> And so, like, I, I've really adopted a very, like, kind of minimalist uh, social media presence. Mm-hmm. And, you know, and I, I, you know, I think for young people, it's important for them to realize, like, you know, this stuff goes out. And don't get me wrong. I said dumb things, like, when I was young. We all did, you know? Yeah, it's like, I did too, yeah. But imagine, you know, I mean, so I started college in 1998. And, like, I'm really glad that people weren't walking around, you know, with cameras in their hands and filming me doing stupid stuff because I did a lot of stupid stuff. Yeah. And, you know, I mean... <sighs> And that's the hardest thing because you want attention and you want engagements, but not at the detriment of your brand and who you are. So, you know, I mean, now it's like I just post very minimally across my platforms. I didn't get into TikTok. And I know this is like, again, I'm sounding like a dinosaur. And, (laughs) you know, I have Instagram. I have Twitter. I have Facebook. I have LinkedIn. You know, LinkedIn is really just a platform for people to pat themselves on the back. They're like, oh, I was walking past this guy the other day. He was down on his luck and blah, blah, blah. And then they're like, ha ha, it's all about this. And everyone's like, all right. And uh, that's fine, you know. Um, But, you know, I think it's just kind of like I put my paintings out. And if you like them, you do. And if you think they are terrible, then that's fine. Yeah, it's it's uh, it's been a learning process for me to and you know, listening to a lot of really, you know, a lot of Gary Vee stuff, a lot of those kind of kinds of guys and like because so many people that have a not really have that have a voice people that are just making noise they say that social media is is bad in its nature right it's not and i and i would disagree that it's not bad in its nature it just shows people that are bad and that don't that don't have like you know a clear i don't know this may sound weird but like a clear heart like if they're trying to do malice in the world and talk shit about people like that's going to show easier on social media because they don't have that connection. Like I, even if I didn't like, I like you, but I, even if I didn't like you, I couldn't talk. Sh- I wouldn't talk shit to you, you like, the like this, <laughs> right? No, I, you're awesome. I wouldn't talk. I couldn't talk shit to you like this. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And a lot of people who want to talk shit, they're cowards anyway. So they right, do right. it behind a screen. Um, yeah. Like, would you, you would you ma- walk up to someone and say what you're about to tweet? You should always think that. Yeah. And then every time I'm about to send anything out on social media, I think to myself, I wait like 20 minutes. And I'm like, what could go wrong here? Who could I offend? How could I upset someone? How could I portray myself in the wrong way? And it's not about like, you know, I don't want to upset people. Like you have to be your authentic self. And everybody says stuff that's going to be, you know, contrary to other people's beliefs and happiness. And, but, you know, I just, you know, if you really sit down and think about what you're like, oh, I came up with something clever and you want to put it out, wait 10 minutes. And then you look back and you're like, oh man, I could get killed. Like I've called so many of my friends that I've seen like, you know, like really successful, great people and like family people. And they'll send out a tweet, you know, in the middle of a maelstrom, which literally is all the time now. Like there's, we're so aware of all the horrible things happening in the world that if you don't share on social media, when something bad is happening, you will never speak because Mm -hmm. the world is, it's a difficult place and we're aware of it. It's always been difficult. You imagine if they had Twitter during the black plague, yeah. They'd be like, yo, homie died up on the street. And he's like, oh, well, I'm dead too. And then someone's like, oh, I got his phone. Oh, I'm dead too. Like, I mean, it would be awful. And <laughs> we're just aware of all that, you know? Like, yeah. And that plays into the algorithms too. They've built the algorithms to um, to react more to negative feelings and negative stories absolutely. than positivity. And 
it's not really the fault of of the algorithm creators because like you know jack was trying to make a business out of it and that's how you get users and that's how you get funding and all that stuff that's how you get that it's it's people not understanding the game of the algorithm and falling into the trap of it somewhat i I don't even really mean trap derogatorily because the algorithm is the algorithm it's meant to create users create activity uh, and then pull your information for advertisers well once you have shareholders and you know it's like you started out as an idealistic platform that's just about like putting your voice out there and then you know you look at john krasinski right like yeah did i say that right krasinski i did krasinski krasinski yeah Yeah, okay so you know he did like the what like the happy good news whatever show during the uh, pandemic and everyone loves it because everyone loves jim halpert and that's all great but then all of a sudden people are like oh well he's profiting off of this and blah 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 and i'm like you know what like that's the reality of it like People always hold creative types to like, as soon as you make any money, they're like, you're a sellout. And I'm like, I don't really think that's the way it should be. I mean, you know, it's okay to make money and it's okay to be successful. Like you look at Bob Dylan, I think he spent, you know, he sold his catalog for $330 million, right? He's doing IBM commercials. And then you look at like the Red Hot Chili Peppers, they sold their catalog for 160 million. You know what I say? Good for you, bud. Mm -hmm. Like you worked hard. You had a, yeah, okay, you had a rock star lifestyle, so it's like, I'm not really sad for you, like most people think, but I'm like, you know, they worked, I mean, that's intellectual property. They created gold. They created memories. They created experiences. They deserve that money. And like, I retain the intellectual property to all my paintings. Mm -hmm. Now, I'm in the NFT space, but I'm doing something Mm. different to figure this out. And in the end, when I put my catalog up there, that's the legacy for my children, and it's going to be worth a lot of money. And I'm going to realize those profits and it's going to go all invested variety of different avenues so that, you know, they can go out and do what they want in their lives. Yeah, definitely. The the people, anybody who's rich, somebody had to work their ass off to get that at some point, whether that's you first, like, I'm not saying you as in Borbet, like you, you just the you in front of me the first a first generation rich person like you started a business it blew up you got rich first generation you had to work your ass off to do that or even if you're like your grandpa's grandpa was loaded you know that he had to do he had to bust his ass to do to get rich totally and obviously you didn't have to do it and that's why people don't like that but somebody had to bust their ass to get all of the wealth in this in that that's ever been Totally. And you or know, I had to kill somebody in the back, way back. <laughs> yeah, there's, look, you know, like the whole honest million billionaire thing. I mean, like, look, you know, I am beyond grateful for successful people because I don't exist without them. I don't. You mm-hmm. know, um, and like I have very successful benefactors and I have people who drive in the flashiest cars and have like 12 houses. And I have people that you never know that they're worth $700 million or a billion dollars. Like, but it doesn't matter. It's like it all comes down to the person, you know, and yeah. it's easy to deride someone who's successful or wealthy. And yes, in, in, if it's first first generation or generational wealth or, you know, quote unquote old money. Yeah. Um, you know, it, it comes down to the person you are, you know, like, mm-hmm. uh, you know, I've met some incredible people who are like insanely wealthy. You never know. They're just chilling. And even if they do have stuff, they're cool. Like, it, you know, it's all good. Like. Anyone, you know, artists all the time, they run into a big problem. They, it's, they love to be counterculture and they're yeah. like, you know, F the 1% and all this stuff. I'm like, you guys are out of your mind. That's the goal. You're right? out of your mind. Like, I want to so be the 1%. Yeah. Man. So many people are like, oh, they're rich. They, they're so snobby. I hate them. And I'm like, dude, that's the freaking goal. That's what I'm working for every day. Like, well, why aren't you trying to do that? 
Well, if you're like, say, like, even if you're in college, right? Like, yeah. if you like did a side project and you made five hundred bucks or a thousand dollars, watch how fast your friends are hitting you up for loot. You know, imagine yeah. like if all of a sudden you're a millionaire or a billionaire. It's like everybody you've ever met in your life is constantly berating you for things, and you know they're they're jealous of your success, and it's just you know. So, look, I think that there's, I think it's very easy to pile on successful and wealthy folks, but I, I think that there's a lot of the other side of the story that's just not told and. You know, I'm I'm never gonna be one of those guys who's just saying like, hey, you know, the one percent, you know, oh man, I'm like, no way, dude. Look, I'm an artist. I create, I create single frame images in an age of technological glory. Yeah. And I paint. It takes me like months to do a painting. If someone appreciates that enough to pay good money, insure it, put it on their wall, and cherish it, like, mm-hmm. I'm never gonna talk down to that. Yeah. On that note. Let's talk about NFTs. Non-fungible tokens. Non-fungible tokens. Okay. So I've had a lot. This has become like super uh, a, a huge trend in the last like month to two months. Every billionaire is talking about it. Every crypto guy, every um, Forex douche is talking about it. Everybody's talking about it who's like wants who wants to make a quick buck. So for those that lis- listening that don't know, Borbe, tell them what an NFT is. Okay, so an NFT is basically the realization of something of someone named uh, Robert Rauschenberg's vision for artists back in the '60s. So what happened? He sold this. Uh, he sold two paintings to uh, Ethel and Bob Skull, who were taxi magnates. One for nine hundred dollars, one for three thousand or two thousand dollars. Then he went to an auction. They turned it around, sold them both for $40,000 a piece. He famously bumped into him, never talked to him again, then went to California where all the IP laws are set and tried to lobby for basically an analog blockchain, which Whoa. is a detailed transaction of who buys a painting or buys a, a creative piece of work, how much they paid for it, who owns it, and then when it transfers ownership, every time it transfers ownership – the artist would get a percentage, the previous owner would get a percentage, and so on and so forth. So if you think about like that painting in 20 transactions, you know, the person who sold it might only get 10% of the sale, and the artist and the original collector still get percentage of the sales because mm-hmm. you see rapid appreciation. So what an NFT is, is it's on a blockchain. Uh, a very popular blockchain is the Ethereum blockchain, and that's where a lot of NFTs are going through OpenSea or Rarible. And basically what you do is you create an, um, you create a, an asset, basically, which could be a video, it could be a graphic, it could just be a JPEG. You put it up on the blockchain, you offer it either for auction or for buy it now sale or a set price, and it goes up, people can bid on it, they could buy it. Once they buy it, you transfer that asset specifically to them, and that's it. And you will get 10% or a fixed percentage every time that transacts in perpetuity. Um, it's relying on a lot of things. Um, it's a relying on cryptocurrency. Mm-hmm. So, and that's extremely volatile. It's relying on the blockchain. It's relying on all these companies to be around for long enough for these assets to still be worth something down the road. Mm-hmm. So it's a gamble. You could call it a hustle if you want to get all Elon Musk about it. But um, I say that the NFT experience, which has been around for years and people who were doing stuff with Giphy, and they're going to run into intellectual property issues because Giphy is owned, I believe, by Google. And uh, eventually it's going to come up. And they were the first people recruited to do NFTs. Um, 
I think we're going to see it's a revolution. It's it's exactly what happened to realtors three months after the pandemic when they saw an unprecedented wave of people wanting to nest, buy homes, move out of major markets. That's what absolutely blew up the Teton Valley market and yeah. blew up the Jackson market. So it's it's wild. It's crazy. It's difficult to explain. But if you're an artist, a photographer, a videographer, a poet or any of that, I mean, you have to be involved. Yeah, definitely. And I have. Uh, I've been doing some research on it, but I can't figure out. Maybe it's just I'm not on the right websites to do it. Like, say I'm not an artist, sure, and I, but I believe in this idea and I want to profit off of it. If you had something up, like, how, is there like cer- certain websites where I I need to have Ethereum as well? But right, because they're like all bought and sold with Ethereum. Right. Well, so there are different there are different currencies, and the assets are called tokens. And the thing is, the problem is, as it stands right now, is it's still very niche. Like. It's a, it's a very high barrier to entry. Yeah. So you have to go and you have to set up like an OpenSea account or a Rarible account. Then you have to go and set up a crypto wallet like MetaMask. So yeah. then you have to set up crypto wallet with MetaMask, give them way too much personal data, and then you got to connect it to your bank account. Then you have to do a withdrawal, and then you got to convert your money into, say, Ethereum, right? Yeah. So then if you want to post an NFT, you go on to OpenSea, you create it. Then you have to pay what's called a gas fee just to get it listed. <laughs> For your first process so the it basically what it does is it eliminates a lot of creators and it eliminates a lot of people who could potentially be buyers eventually what's going to happen is you're going to have a facebook or or or, uh you know a google they're going to buy an entire series of sites there and they're going to lower the barrier to entry so where you could literally go in and just put your credit card that's what has to happen because right now it's too crazy Mm -hmm. like i'm doing a series totally experimental on OpenSea. There was a conceptual artist named An Kawara, who is a Japanese conceptual artist. And one of his major projects was he would do a date painting every day. And so he'd do a paint like APR.12.1974. So what's, what's the... It's a, the, the site's called OpenSea. So if you go to OpenSea, OpenSea and then go Bourbet, it'll pull up. And, uh, and so, so basically what I'm doing is like a date experience every day. So it started out as just a, just a graphic and then it kind of morphed into where I'm doing video clips each day with the date mm. over it. And it's kind of like a it's like it's like a phantom ghost experience of my life and what's happening and it's evolved, you know? So it's like you know, you take one idea and then it just kind of grows from there. But so what I'm doing with this and like you can see like I've literally sold none and I've done 52 and I'm just figuring it out. Like today I did uh the Bellagio and that's when I was last in Vegas and you know, hanging out at mm-hmm. the Cosmo whatever and it's just a video clip, and that's it. And it's going for I, – I set everything at a half an Ethereum, which is you know $1,906.03 today. When I first started doing this a month ago, that would be $722. You know? So uh, it's, it's extremely volatile. And then you mm-hmm. know, from a tax perspective, it's very fascinating like, you know, as an artist. So when you sell something, if you sell it in crypto, that's a taxable event at the exact value. So then if I take it out at a loss, then that's a taxable event at a loss, which is good to offset profits. But then if I take it out and it's at a profit, so then I'm taxed on that profit as capital gains. So it's it's fucking a, capital gains yeah, tax. Capital gains could take a hike. You I know, think Biden's like, going to do when when does that bigger capital gains tax go into effect? Is you that, know, is that real yet? I don't know. I mean, I you know, you're hearing waves about it. I mean, you know, there's thresholds. I think that the capital gains tax is only going to go up over like say a million or maybe a million five. But 
you know, it's 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 what an agency would say, scope creep. You know, it's like taxes are only going to go up for people making joint five hundred, and then it's an individual making four hundred, then it's an individual making two hundred, and then when does it come down to an individual making a hundred? You know, yeah. Like it's uh, you just got to be careful. You got to keep an eye out, and you know, when it comes down to it, if you're creative, no matter what you do, and I don't care if you're making ten thousand dollars a year or less, get an accountant, get a really good accountant. Yeah. Use that accountant every year learn to keep great records because it's so important. Yeah. I got a great story for that on accountants. So Taylor is a labor and delivery nurse at St. John's as her main job. Oh, fabulous. Um, yes. Uh, she took a travel assignment last summer in Minnesota for a little bit. So just another, another job for taxes. Um, and then she also does IVs for house call hydration. Um, do you fabulous. know them? Uh, yeah. Yeah. So, and she's an independent contractor for them. Love it. So three kind of different incomes. So she tr- goes on and tries to do her taxes on, you know, whatever TurboTax or H&R Block. And they said, you're going to have to owe the government 1500 bucks. And yeah. she's like, shit, I have to owe them 1500 bucks. Like, this sucks. Yeah, yeah. And I'm like, honey, almost nobody has to owe them money if you have a full-time job. Yeah. Like, the hospital deducts money from all your paychecks. Like, you're going to be fine. Exactly. I'll bet you $100 you don't pay any money. She's like, no, it said it, H&R Block. Like, I, did, I think I did it the right way. I was like, no, you didn't. We're going to have the accountant do it. So we have a great guy, um, Steve Moss, who does my business's taxes and um, now does my personal because it, it's since it's an LLP, it gets looped in. Sure. But I'm like, hey, Steve, can you do tailors? And she has multiple incomes. Like It was kind of complicated for us. He comes back, and she's getting an $850 uh, return. Well, and again, this <laughs> and comes back like, to what yes. this, does this come back to the conversation of let the professionals do their work, right? It does, yeah. All I said was Absolutely. like, what do you need from us? Like, you do your thing. You're a CPA. Like, I obviously value because you've got me great returns on the times you've done mine. Mm-hmm. Like, let the professionals do it. Taylor, you're not a tax accountant. You're a nurse. You're a really good nurse. You know, I, I can relate to that. My wife, Erin, uh, she's an acupuncturist and an herbalist. and But for years, she was a doula. Mm, and awesome. so, yeah, so we had three home births for Whoa. all three of our kids, which was pretty wild. And and the, did you have anybody else come oh, in to help? Or did she was she doulaing while birthing? Well, we had midwives. And oh, yeah. so the first so the first two, um, uh, my daughters were born in our apartment on East 20th Street, <laughs> which, by the way, I had a two-year lease, and I used it as my art studio and my living space, and we had two home births. We got our full deposit back, which is pretty wicked. Wow, that's some good cleaning. Yeah, it, yes. And, uh, and then um, my son, Esser, was born in our home in Idaho, and so we had the, uh, I think they call themselves the Mountain Mamas. And, mm. um, you know, uh, one of our midwives was uh, Whitney, who is one of the owners of the Naughty Pine over there, which is like one of our favorite places. And yeah. uh, it was amazing when we did the gender reveal because she was the midwife. We were like, hey, tell Adam, the bartender, like what the gender is. And we're like, give us a beer and a shot for a boy or a greyhound for a girl. <laughs> and so we went in and we ran around the corner and came up and there was good fellas on TV and a shot and a beer. And I was like, you know, there were two of them. I drank them as a gentleman because she was pregnant, you know, um, <laughs> but it's, it's totally cool. But yeah, like sidetrack, it's uh it's, it's very important to get it done professionally because once yeah. you get to a certain point, especially if you have multiple revenue streams. Yeah. So you got to be careful. And that's why like, you know, I let my accountant know, I'm like, Hey, I'm getting into NFT space. I don't know what's going to happen. I'm doing this. Um, I signed on with this group called Parity Now, mm-hmm. and I'm doing an entire uh, series of NFTs for uh, female athletes. Um, very Sick. successful, amazing athletes, and like Olympians, world record holders, like all sorts of stuff. Um, and it's just gonna be amazing. Like I don't know where that's gonna go. You know, we have big corporate sponsors, and like you know, I'm talking um, to this woman, Shannon. 
and she her 5k pr and i was a division one scholarship runner is 11 seconds faster than mine which is kind of fascinating i'm like i'm like you know you could like at my prime totally like whoop me hard you know like it's amazing (laughs) and uh so it's just gonna be really fun to work with them but you know i think that the space you know it's been around in um in like kind of like the inside channels for years you know but now that it's becoming more mainstream and it's talked about more but it's still nascent you know it's still like you know i look at this project as like i could do 365 date paintings and sold you know digital date paintings sell none of them mm-hmm. but if i go out and you start taking off you're looking at like two thousand dollars a day for something i start my day with for 365 days you know so it's like I think you got to take risks and this is what, you know, this is realtors blowing up after the COVID and this is for creatives to go out there and kill it. And, you know, if you want to like get involved in the game, find someone you like and try to get them, you know, work out a deal to get some of these NFTs and just put them away. Just like you put away a wallet with uh, you know, cryptocurrency and forget about it. It's yeah. so volatile. I mean, like you look at Dogecoin, like, you know, Elon Musk goes on Saturday Night Live. Everyone's like to the moon, $1. And then it's like, you down to like 38 cents. And everyone's mm-hmm. like, no, yeah but i'm like you just, it's just, it's the long game you know you gotta play the long game yeah i ha- i do have some bitcoin on uh on coinbase and i also invested in i bought some coinbase shares or one share when they ipo'd good for you it's not going well right now well you know what though it's not going well right now and yeah. that's because all the whales already had a bunch of shares made like a cool two three hundred million then dumped them because that was the plan yeah but you just got to hold on to it you know you just got to hold and and you know look i think with investing it's very simple and i'm very new to investing because mm. i have three kids and i'm an artist so I, it's not like i've been sitting on a pile of cash yeah but I, you know, I, it's like when I walk into a Vegas casino and I go to Vegas a lot, I'm like, all right, I'm here for two weeks. I'm going to gamble with $800. If I lose that $800 in five minutes, I don't go to the cash machine. That's mm-hmm. it. You know, I'm done. And I think you got to do the same with investing. You know, you put in money you're comfortable with. I mean, you put in your money in your Roth and, you know, get that squirreled away for a while. And, you know, you take it out when you're 60 or 59 and a half. And outside of that, once you're there, you just play with whatever you're willing to lose. Because if you go... And you pick out one of those currencies like Bitcoin and you buy, you know, a, a hundred Bitcoin and hold on to them for 10 years, they were 60 grand a pop. That's half a million bucks. Yeah, definitely. It's I, I kind of take the approach of um, I guess I guess you'd call it like kind of the Warren Buffett approach. It's like, do you think that this asset, this company or or coin um, is going to be more valuable in the future than it is now? And a call comes down to that. So I have I have companies that I really think are going to be a mainstay. Like I have Apple, I have the company I work for. I have I bought Delta at the bottom of the of the of quarantine. I bought That's a smart uh, move, by the way. I Anyone bought, who bought the airline stocks at the at the I mean, I wasn't even like doing anything then. I'm like, man, that's such a brilliant move because you know it's gonna go up. It has to. Yeah. I had my biggest I, I don't know if I want to tell people this, but I will. I had my biggest earning income year ever in 2020. Good for you, man. <laughs> because, because like the banks, the banks were still buying stuff. They still had projects to do. Like the banks still had money. Totally. They, I don't know if they got a stimulus, but they did not need it. Um, but so I, I like I got a good commission check, and I was like, oh, let's, you know, I keep seeing all these numbers of like, Delta's this, Delta's that, like, and I and I like Delta, and um, I was like, oh, I'll buy them when I think they're gonna be close to the bottom. Yep. And just be okay losing it but i know it'll come back because i'm eventually like restrictions will open up and people will fly more and that will drive their stock price right and even if they're bought the brand name is recognizable enough so no one's going to absorb them like there's so uh, i'm a huge sopranos fan and i don't know if you if you're into it and if you've never seen the show lily hammer it's amazing so lily hammer is the unofficial sequel to the sopranos 
I've and, not seen either. Okay, well, again, there's this is the age gap, right? Yeah, yeah. So a homework assignment. It's <laughs> okay. only going to take you like three weeks to watch it all. But like, so Lily Hammer, so it's like uh, Silvio Dante's character under another name. He like went wit pro and goes over to Lily Hammer in Norway. And mm -hmm. it's because he loved the Olympics there. Yeah. And so there's a scene where he's uh, buying this, uh, I think it's like a Melman piece. And he goes, uh, he goes to his like kind of henchman. And he's like, I don't know anything about collecting art. What do I do? And he goes, you buy something that's worth more when you sell it. And I think it's like, I mean, that's the perfect ethos for everything. And like, yeah. you know, I don't ever say, and I think it it's disingenuous for artists to say this, like, don't be like, oh, this is going to appreciate like crazy. All you can do is tell them what the market does. Like, I'm like, well, I sold a three, you know, I sold a 30 by 30 painting like this 10 years ago for 2,400 and now it's going for 18,000. You could draw your own conclusions. Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? And of course, with art, it's the funny career where people are always like, how's your health? You know, because when you die, there's a finite amount out there, just like cryptocurrency. They're like, that's a Bitcoin. You know, there's a cap. There's yeah. no cap on Doge. Yeah. And but once you're an artist and you're dead, there's a cap. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and yeah. people are like, okay, so we could quantify and qualify exactly how many pieces are out there, what the market value is. We could bump it up at least 15 to 20 percent, maybe 50 percent upon your death. So it's the one career where people are always asking how you're doing. Yeah. They're like, oh, but Borbea, it'd be a shame if you took a hit in that those hockey games you're playing in. They're like, oh, it's a it's shame. A shame. It, it's a it's a real shame you didn't uh, crash in the boards there and uh Wes didn't put you through the glass and uh that was that for you. <laughs> yeah. Anyway, glad I picked up those two paintings. <laughs> yeah, yeah, thanks for the paintings. <laughs> exactly. Oh man, that's funny. Um can I can I run through an art an art conspiracy Fire away. that I've been seeing on the internet. Great. So this circular like valuation of art pieces where a rich person uh, buys a piece from somebody. Mm -hmm. I don't think it matters who, but they then they have a buddy who runs like an are there art valuation companies? Sure, appraisers. Appraisers. All, yeah, okay, art appraisers. That's mm -hmm. the word. Yeah, they have a buddy who's an art appraiser. The art appraiser then appraises it at an enormous amount of money. Yes. So then that rich person can uh then they like i think then they like donate it somewhere which is then a tax write-off um and then th because their buddy the appraiser appraised it so high then now if anybody wants to buy that piece it's now that much more expensive and then that rich person gets that Okay, so yes. Is that a real thing that happens? Of course. Uh, you know, art, uh, fine art especially, is a, a catalyst for money laundering. Mm. And that's why people keep a close eye because really like a painting that sold for $5 million 10 years ago or five years ago should not in any realm of reality go for $121 million at auction, but it does. There's a great book you can read if you want to get into this. It's a little bit old, but it's very, very, very on point. It's called The $12 Million Stuffed Shark. And it's... It's about the story of Damien Hirst's Stuffed Shark, which is entitled, and I, I believe it's called the, the Impossibility of Death in the Mind of the Living. So Steve Cohen, um, and I'm sure you've heard his name recently. So Steve Cohen is a, an extremely wealthy man. He's got a great eye for art collecting. Um, 
He's a brilliant guy. So he saw this, and I think it cost him. You know, he had to hire someone. Uh, Damien Hurst had to hire someone to catch the shark in Australia. Then he had to transport it, put it in formaldehyde, and then of course it decays. So then you got to replace the shark, which is a whole other intellectual property question: Is it the same piece of art? Anyway, I digress. So mm. Steve Cohen decides he gets the right people, and they like decide to value it at twelve million dollars. So then, what does Steve Cohen do? He's a smart guy. He puts it on loan to the MoMA, and he puts it on loan to the Met, and that gives you incredible incredible high profile action and on top of that gives you insulation because these are also publicly funded institutions the fact that they accepted this great loan and he got a great tax Mm write-off he becomes part of the lexicon so when sac capital his investment firm is under indictment guess who goes number two number three guess where steve cohen is today he just purchased the mets so (laughs) yeah so basically what you're saying is exactly right and you know currency in the world is art and creativity. So if you're a major donor at the Metropolitan Opera House Mm -hmm. and they're putting on performances, if there's a big scandal coming out for you, not only is your team looking out for you and your lawyers, but the government's also looking out for you because they don't want to be guilty by association. So art is one of the best ways to insulate yourself from problems. And I'm not like, and I'm not trying to talk smack about Steve Cohen. Like he's a, he's a great guy. I don't know the ins and outs, but you look at this book and you read it and it's essentially what you take away. Yeah. That's insane. That, that whole story you just, you just described. That is nuts. Um, I'm not even sure where to go with that, but that's nuts. Is this, um, have you something I just I just saw on Joe Rogan the other day? Have you heard of the um, the male Mona Lisa? Uh, no, I haven't. Um, or are you talking about the uh, the painting that went for like a hundred and twenty one million? Yeah, yeah, the Da Vinci. Yeah. And then now they're finding out that it wasn't even painted by him, and like all this. They other think it's stuff. a bunch of other. Yeah, it's like it, it's like a bunch of other a bunch of other. They think he did do a part of it. So and then a bunch of others. As time went on. So if you if you look at it like if you want to break down how crazy the art market is, is like look at it like this. So let's say that you have a Jasper Johns painting that is worth ten million dollars and you bring it to auction, it goes for hundred and twenty one million dollars. Now, people are like, How are you laundering money through that? I don't get it. So you have a third party proxy call in bidder who puts the big bid at the end. So put it like this. You've seen narcos, you've seen shows like that. Mm-hmm. So let's say that you're making so much money that you literally can't handle it. I mean, we've all seen Scarface. They're bringing in so much money the bank they can't handle it so if you go and buy an asset that's 121 million dollars you're basically cleaning half of 242 million dollars right and so that other money all of a sudden becomes legitimate so yes you kind of lose half of the money but you can legitimize it you know what i'm saying so that's how they're doing the money laundering Mm -hmm. and there's no reason to ever sell a painting for 120 or 150 it's insane like people's uh nft that's all just a it was a ploy of you know the auction houses to be like, hey, we're in the space. We need a big splash. Let's make sure it goes for sixty nine. You know, and everybody's gonna be like, whoa, this NFT space is for real. You know. Yeah. What was what was that guy's name again? Beeple. B e e p l e. Let's look at it because I did hear about that, but I I don't know if I actually saw what it looked like. So it's his first five thousand days. So a lot of artists they have these things where they do a drawing a day or a graphic a day, and so he did that, and it's all the graphics in one giant JPEG and. You know, again, with an NFT, people can download the JPEG, they can print it out, put it on their wall, whatever, and like the person only owns the NFT. So that's the that's the perplexing nature of the space. And you know, if you look at it, there are some very unsavory images in there. Um, you know, and also a lot of intellectual property rights are coming into play. You know, it's like 
can you do is um, taking uh, Buzz, uh, Buzz Lightyear and putting a yeah. pigtail on him like or something. Things. Yeah, is that transformative enough? And, you know, it's hard to say, like, Baby Yoda, like... Or Mickey. Yeah, like... and Mickey. But then again, you look at, like, Alec Monopoly, and, you know, he's, like, one of... He's, like, the most famous of an entire lexicon of artists who do the Scrooge McDuck diving into money with a little, like, graffiti tag on it. And, like, mm-hmm. you know, there's, there's just a, a repeat and a repeat and a repeat and a repeat, but I don't know how they get away with it. You know, even like Cause, I mean, Cause, K-A-W-S, one of the most famous and best-selling artists in the world right now, dude from New Jersey, knows his business super tight, but he'll do like uh, Simpsons characters with X's in their eyes or Disney characters with X's in their eyes, and he does merchandise, and he does sculptures, and he does shoes, and he does everything, and it's like, it's amazing how he got away with it, um, you know, and so... Yeah, that's like Pinocchio there. Yeah, when you're talking about, so when you're talking about what can you call yours it has to be what's defined as transformative mm. which jasper johns kind of termed the best and said it's like take something do something to it do something else to it so as long as you're making a new statement with something you can appropriate other images and other intellectual property but if it's not deemed transformative it's it's a liability did you did your uh master's paintings ever get into any of that space are you allowed to paint it because it's a it's outside. It's a landscape. Yeah. And, you know, a lot of it is just I'm watching it on TV and that's kind of what I'm riffing off. You can't prevent someone from doing that. So, like, yeah. here's the thing. Um, if you're creating a unique piece of artwork, then you're safe. You're protected. And a lot of places like Pebble Beach is extremely careful about their intellectual. You can't take photos on the course. Yeah. If you take photos and you send them out, you're in big trouble. But you know what? If you go to artinamerica.com and you type in Pebble Beach and you type in Augusta National, you're going to see hundreds, if not thousands of different paintings. Yeah. So essentially, you'd have to take down the entire art market to go after someone. And again, like if you look at my paintings, they're weird. Like they're not like, oh, that's just the painting of the golf course. You know, it's like Mm -hmm. so it's transformative, you know, and of course there's, you know, anyone can challenge anything. I mean, that's that's just facts. I mean, Richard Prince. Right. Very, very famous artist like notorious like antagonizer in the space he'll go and take like for a period for a while he would go and i'm not even joking he'd take an instagram photo comment on it take a screen grab of it print it out put it on the wall sell it for 50 or a hundred thousand dollars that was his art and then everyone's like oh my god like this can't be real you know and like but there are people pushing those boundaries. And again, intellectual property art precedents are all set out of California courts. So whatever goes through there kind of trickles down through the rest of the country. So mm-hmm. you see a lot of these, and it's a moving target. There was, um, there was a rabbi, and this is like maybe 15 years ago, very famous case. He was, uh, he was in Times Square. Someone took a photo of him and was in a gallery, did prints. He sued him, and he lost the lawsuit because – for the artist, it was uh, it's reasonable to be in a public space like Times Square and expect that you'll be photographed. And because he did a limited edition series, he was protected. Uh, alternatively, this dude, yeah. And so, alternatively, you have um, then you have Shepard Ferry who did the Hope poster for Obama's campaign. Uh-huh. So he took the image and was basically an Associated Press photographer's image. Didn't contact, didn't get licensing, and then. But what he did was he did open-ended series of posters, mugs, every kind of merchandising. That's when you run into big trouble. So he ended up having to pay a lot of money to the Associated Press, but he actually went to jail for a short period of time because he destroyed evidence on his computer. So that was tampering with evidence. Mm -hmm. So, you know, so it's it's a very fine line. You always want to push the boundaries, but you want to be as respectful as you can. You know, I mean, you know, in theory, like everything is derivative from something else. I do square format portraits because Warhol did, you know, like. 
I'm not the first person to do that. I'm not the first person to do bus portraits. Am I the first person to incorporate photos and headlines? No. Am I the first person to do it in a certain way? Maybe. I don't know. Like, it's very hard to say. But, you know, when people see your work and they feel that it's like, okay, that's something very unique. Like, yeah, if you go to portraits and you see bubbles, right? Like, I'm a huge Trailer Park Boys fan. So. Yeah. yeah. And the cool thing is through this, I didn't even do it for him. It sold it to a really cool collector who's now in Amsterdam. But, like, I got to know him through that. And he's like, cool, dude. Uh, yeah. Trevor Gillies and yeah so look and, you know sweet they're you know and it's like it's like you can you can claim anything about anything and it's just about like look if you can like I show my process so you know like I'm like this is authentic I start I deconstruct the image I reconstruct the image and that's it and like yeah Indiana Jones <sighs> Indiana right? like, Jones it's so good thanks man these are so awesome oh man okay yeah. Draper <laughs> uh okay when when Rolls Mini Marketing makes it big, where I'm getting a, I'm getting this, I'm getting Don Draper. Don part of watching Mad Men in college was <laughs> oh, like dude, huge. At that time when I told you about I was we were doing the stuff in the marketing classes where it came together where I was like, oh fuck yeah, I want to be a marketing executive. Yes. That's Don Draper. Like I don't want to smoke cigarettes all the time, but I want to be a marketing executive. Well, or you know, become like a raging alcoholic. But yeah. he uh yeah, that one uh, you know, you'd have to you'd have to talk to the collector that puppy's out uh in a do new you, home. Do you do like secondary or smaller like prints of any of these or is all no, original all originals um i've done limited edition prints for collectors who did a special painting like you know i've done uh, tribute paintings for people who have passed and you know a, like a run of 10 prints but mm -hmm. if you see a bourbet out there it's original and i'd rather have that to be the case um i have some very successful artists who do a lot of repros they might make eight thousand dollars or six thousand dollars on the sale of the painting and they can make one hundred and twenty thousand on reproductions mm -hmm. but it's a different business you know you become a retailer and you know for me it's i, I really want to control my product i want to yeah. know how it looks out there so you know when someone walks in the wall they're like oh that's a bourbet and they're like you know that's the that's the authentic deal so yeah it goes along with the idea that you we were texting about of just going by the one the one name yes definitely um oh in in that space of like artist ownership of stuff something sometimes it, something that i run into a little bit less now uh but is music usage for for content purposes mm -hmm. gets it's, flagged all the time even if you yeah. have permission yeah it's something that i kind of go back and forth on but but for people who don't get what i'm saying um so when i create a, make a video and i find a cool song i want to put on it um certain songs don't allow social media usage um and i've noticed the trend is a lot of them like a lot of like the 70s and 80s artists like older artists they're all owned by like warner brothers or something or sony mm -hmm. these big old record companies they don't let you do shit with <laughs> any of it um but then there's you know newer artists that are more into it and more free with it and and as a marketer and a content creator i don't get if you if you're a if you're an up-and-coming artist or if you're not a if you're not a super superstar artist yet why wouldn't you want your song and actually now with the, with the dawn of tiktok this kind of flipped this on its head but why wouldn't you want your song being used for for content right well i mean i think you look at it as you know for a long time there's nothing more antiquated than the music market and yeah. the 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 unbelievable contracts that these artists signed i mean they're signing away everything they everything they create their catalogs and it's it's very crazy yeah that's insane that they that that it's just the norm that they do that and and it came up 
when uh, Taylor Swift remastered all her classics. Right. And it's insane that uh, uh, an artist of her stature has to redo all that magic that she did back in the day because yeah. she doesn't own her masters. I mean, and that's and that's very sad. And I understand that, you know, it's a business and you got to be careful. Like, you know, when I'm signing contracts to do collaborations, I mean, if you read the contract, they literally will own your style if you don't stop them. You have to yeah. go and say, I need to strike paragraph six in its entirety. It has to be gone yeah. because I'm not going to do that. Like, you know, you'll sign a contract and like, you can't sign any other contracts. I'm like, there's no way I could do that. Like, unless you were like, if you want exclusivity and you want to, you know, give me millions of dollars, then like, okay, uh, otherwise not a chance. And that's the thing. And again, like, like accountants, you need a good attorney and you need to understand you need someone who's in the art space or the creative space. And you need someone who understands IP and someone who could just be like, oh my gosh, no way we're doing this. And, you know, I'm lucky that I have weird legal experience. And, you know, even though I was like only a faux attorney and, you know, my brother's an attorney and I just reconnected with my hockey buddies in New York, this guy Carter, and he's specifically in the art game and pretty amazing. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, that um, we do all of our contracts from Multimini. Um, there's a clause in there that says that anything we create for you, for the client, we own. Mm-hmm. And then we have it with, with Julia, our, our employee, because she's an independent contractor, it says anything she creates we own of course because i didn't think it'd be an issue like you know it's social media posts it's not like i'm creating this yeah. right i'm yeah. creating like you know here's a bottle with the tetons it's cool like we're jackson hole buy some vodka right, right. you don't think when you get into it that there's going to be ip stuff but there's always ip stuff always. always like i've had so many conversations like with different types of clients where it's like oh yeah so who owns this stuff you've created i'm like uh, fucking me. <laughs> well, you know, and the other thing, we used to see this in the advertising game all the time. You'd have like this really young, you know, very like aggressively like hopeful, you know, person who comes in as like an assistant designer, then leaves the company after six months because he's acting a little weird. And then all of a sudden he's posting up uh, all the work done by the creative director as his own stuff. Mm-hmm. And it's a cease and desist and stuff. But, you know, it's like, it's funny. You see a lot of these shady folks, like they're climbing the ladder, like, that one dude I was just mentioning, I mean, he's like executive creative director at a major agency now. And it's like, you know, there's there's an element of that. And, you know, it's like you just you want to honor the situation the best you can. And look, you know, contracts are important when you're an artist. Like I sign a contract. If you're my best friend, we're signing a contract. I don't care. Like yeah. that's how we're doing it. Yeah. Um, but, you know, I there are people at this point where like I will ship it out before I get the payment because I would do a deal on a handshake with them. And it's yeah. rare, but that that's the best people to work with. Yeah. Yeah, people get um uh a lot of people are afraid of contracts. But what I always is, what I always say is that they're not for when things are going good, they're for when they're going bad. Precisely. And you know, look, I, you know, you, you don't need these giant contracts. Like my page I have a one pager for my deals yeah. and that's it. And it just covers what we need to. And like, you know, as you get more popular, if you're like a Jeff Coons, you can go and do resale stipulations and all this other stuff. But you know, people make an investment, they want to reap the benefits. You know, if they buy mm-hmm. this painting today for 25000 they want to know that they could sell it for 50000 in two, three years without my interference. And I understand that. And I respect that. Mm-hmm. You know, but once I start selling paintings for 100 200 500 then I'm going to have resale stipulations. Yeah. Yeah, ours are pretty simple too. It's just like, um, we will do this work for you. You will pay us this much for this work. The term is this. Um 
if you want to get out of the contract before the term is done, you have to pay us this. Kill fee, yep. Yeah. That's something we we our contracts are getting bigger and bigger with every like experience we learn from. Right. It's like, oh, we need that in there. We need a kill fee in there. We need like this and that in there. Like um and then just like a services description. Like well, you it's have, not that hard. You start out with a basic agreement and then you eventually evolve into a master service agreement and that master service agreement gets so big that with new clients you sign the MSA and then you start uh individual statements of work for each engagement and it becomes more tedious, you know, and eventually you'll flirt with the idea of in-house counsel. Yeah, that what that experience you said right there with the MSA and the SOWs, that's my day job. So <laughs> I sell I sell a lot of software, but I also sell professional services to them when they're like, all right, we need these two platforms integrated. We're like, all right, great. We well, can do that. Like, here's your hour. Here's your estimate. Here's your hours. We can do it. Here's the scope. So I write, I write SOWs all day, every day. So that all doing that all the time for freaking banks yeah. has helped me so much in writing contracts for the business because it's like, you know, uh, like I, I need one fifth, one tenth of the amount of stipulation on, my my small businesses contracts as I do on the SOWs, but it helps to come in with that experience and be like, no, this is how it's done. I know how to write this kind of legal verbiage, and this is how it's interpreted um, by companies that are way more valuable than what we're doing right here. Right, and the key is when you work with someone and you're working with a team, they want to know how you're managing your assets and you know how much each person is working and what they're accountable for and. Yeah, I mean it's all great experience. Like I said, you know, like you know, for me, I had all this weird business background, but it was critical to my success as an independent artist. So yeah, it's all good stuff. Can we talk about your stand up? Sure. A little bit. Yeah, yeah, yeah. How long did you do stand up for? Uh, so I did it for about a year, and um, you know, and I would still do kind of drop ins for a couple of years after, but um, I just moved to New York. Uh, I did this low budget reality TV in Boston and I didn't know what to do. And I, I wanted to be an actor, but I didn't want to pay for lessons. So I just started doing stand up. And my first set, I did it at stand up New York. I don't know how I got on the show. Mm-hmm. Um, like Jim Norton was on it. I don't <laughs> I, I legit don't know how I ended up on this. And I was sitting in the lobby before I went up the first time I had my cousin, I had my college friends there. I didn't have any material. I was a disaster and I'm, I'm like sweating and I'm, I'm crushing Heineken's and so, and there's no one at the bar. It's like 50 stools. And I sit down and like all of a sudden this guy walks up and sits right down next to me. I'm like, what's going on? Turn over. It's Tracy Morgan. Oh. Right. And I'm like sweating bullets. I go, Oh man, Tracy. I was like, please don't tell me you're doing a drop in. Cause this is my first show. I'm a freak out. So he has like this big bodyguard, like the guy he had on this show, you know? And yeah. he like looks over his shoulder, looks over his shoulder again and waves him over with his finger. And then this giant dude taps me on the shoulder. He goes, don't talk to Tracy. What? Two seconds later, literally the MC comes in and is like, you're up. And I went up on stage shook. And like, apparently this is Tracy's thing. Like he, like he loves to like raz new comics. So I got Tracy Morgan. Oh my God, dude. So like I had that. And then my other best story, like, and I had some good ones. Like I got like kicked out of a conversation with David tell because you know, he didn't think I like, he's like, he's like, Oh, you know, like I think Ben Bailey or something wanted to smoke. He's like, do you have a smoke for him? I was like, no, he's like, don't ever not have a smoke for your superiors dismissed. And I kind of laughed and he's like, no, I'm serious. Get out of here. I'm like, Oh, all right. And, uh, and I did one show when my wife came into town and this was after I kind of retired, but I still did it sometimes. It was at New York comedy club. And I done like, I done my set and I've realized that I left my phone on the stage, which is like 
insanely stupid. And so I was like, oh, babe, we got to go back. And we ran into Jim Gaffigan. And I'd done sets with him. Jim Gaffigan is like a home birth guy, prolific yeah. birther. Like, I think he had like six kids or something. He always had a new kid there. Yeah. And I was like, he's like, oh, Jason, you know, can I do a walk on? I was like, dude, absolutely. So I go to my friend Roy. I go, yo, kick this clown off stage. We got gaffigan for a drop and so it's like one of my first dates with my girlfriend and i'm like oh yeah jim gaffigan and he went up and did like 45 minutes about ketchup packets it was magical his i, I fell in love with jim gaffigan the first one i i think probably is his stuff about like hot pockets oh but dude hot pockets that's it the mm, but the, the was the way he does that like voice of like the the woman in the audience oh, is yeah. like the funniest fucking so thing scared ever. i don't know if i like him he's scary yeah, where he's just like is this inner monologue of people like what they're thinking as he's saying the other stuff, and it's so spot on every time. He's so good. Where they're where he's like, why is he talking about hot pockets for so long? Because <laughs> it's like they're for sure thinking that as he's talking about hot pockets for thirty minutes. No, and you know, I, I and he's an absolutely lovely guy. I, yeah. yeah, like you know, you meet some comics and they like to give you a hard time. Like you know, Tracy likes to break some balls, and you know, if you don't have a smoke, David Tell's gonna kick you out of the circle of trust and yeah. but like you know it's still it's it's rad i mean like i was watching um shoot i can't even remember the name uh it's like uh, it's crashing so i was watching that show and uh on hbo and it was amazing because i'm watching i'm like oh my god i like was in the scene with these people like <laughs> jessica kirsten like she was doing like she would MC the shows at gotham and i was up for like uh i was trying out for the um what was it called the MC for the early show at gotham comedy club i lost out to this girl named amy schumer <laughs> so i'm not saying that i could have been amy schumer i can't you know <laughs> like I, I look i wasn't you, meant for comedy but i had a really good time doing it and you know now when i find myself in front of very important people or doing a podcast i'm like i did comedy i, I i've had wise guys throw bottles at my head at two o'clock in the morning you know yeah. it's all good yeah that's awesome that's a whole like it's such a it's such a um interesting art to try to be funny um but seem like you're just sta walking up there talking. You know, it is. And, and the thing is, the game is a grind. I mean, I remember I'd wake up at like 4 o'clock in the afternoon, hungover as a wildebeest, and I'd go and do a 7 o'clock show, a 9 o'clock show, an 11 o'clock show. In the summers, I was uh, the warm-up comic at Dangerfields for prom shows. And if you've ever seen like 30 to 60 kids who grew up in the city at 2.30 in the morning drunk off their you-know-what, <laughs> like trying to make them laugh for 45 minutes. Yeah brutal and i've i've had it with a headliner was late and i then i'm making up stuff as i go and then he'd come and watch me because i'm sweating and he thinks it's hilarious and you know and then you go to a diner and you're drinking beers eating like omelets at seven in the morning sun comes up and you pass out and do it again yeah and you look at the most successful com and look it, it varies you know like but like you look at ray romano uh you look at um kevin james and jerry seinfeld those guys were sober as a judge mm -hmm. they would go from show to show to show in cabs and they killed it and they were family friendly you know, and, you know, it's an amazing what they were able to do. Um, and then mm -hmm. there are people who are in the scene and you're going to see them sipping whiskey every night. And yeah, yeah, it's tough. It, it's a crazy game. It is. A, it's a culture unlike any other. Yeah. Do you like would you like sit down and like write jokes out or like where would you how would you get your material? Well, you know, it's like once you do comedy, it's sort of like everyone wants to tell you, oh, that's funny. Or like, oh, I got a funny story for you that you should use. It's like in Seinfeld yeah. when George, you probably know Seinfeld, like I'm, again, I'm too I've, old. I've watched like, 
a couple se- like one and a half seasons maybe 40 and a half but but <laughs> so, i wasn't i wasn't keeping up with like the the new york jew type of storyline that sure, they were sure. like going with i was like i'm from i don't know like and of that. course they filmed it in la but you know yeah. so what i used to do is i would never go i would always have a recorder and a notebook and so basically when i'm walking in i would go and just kind of walk laps in central park you know recording stuff and writing stuff down and all the stuff you think is great is terrible and all the stuff that you think is terrible is probably terrible and it's just rare to get like any good material yeah and i was really blue i talked about like you know uh, just all sorts of garbage and like airplane food and like that's like the classic joke right it's like What's the deal with airliner food? Oh no, no, blue just means dirty. Uh, I that's oh, for, yeah. in, in the game it's blue. So I would talk about like, I, I had this like long, and I'm not going to go into it because it's really not funny. I've, I've I've learned this over the years, but it was it was called like, uh, um, lady part mileage. You know, and I'm trying to just be general because in case my daughters <laughs> hear this, and it was like calculating the average size of a Uno and how many times it goes in per session per week, and then add up all that at the end of a year, calculate the mileage, put it all together, throw it over the Empire State Building, catch it on the Chrysler. There's still more, you know, like that kind of thing. It was just like, you know, and and, you know, it's like, like, how come we could fly to the moon and, you know, vacuums are still out? Stupid things, you know, like, yeah, it just depends on the audience. And I don't know. I'm I'm glad a lot of my sets aren't out there. (laughs) That's hilarious. Oh, man. That's like a, that's that's a whole other skill that that I don't think I ever want to try, but by but I admire the people that can make it seem like they're just walking up there and like freelancing. Well, you know, and it's huge now. Like I, I've never been shy on the mic. And so like I, when I moved here, I saw on the Facebook community page that they needed an auctioneer for Derby day, uh, for, you know, happy trails, horse charity at the Wildwood room in Victor. And I was here for like two weeks and I'm like, Oh, you know, I auctioneered once in New York. So I did it. And, uh, I ended up becoming the auctioneer there. So then I auctioneered for the art and wine event for the hospital foundation. Now I'm doing an auctioneer for a golf event this summer. And like, that's where it's like minimal comedy skills really come into play. Cause you yeah. can just, it's all about timing. Like you get more laughs with silence. Like you just kind of look around and people are like, Oh man, that's so funny. And it's like, when you try to be funny, you're garbage. And like, you just kind of say nothing. And then it's especially for me. Cause I talk too much. <laughs> yeah auctioneer that's you've you've a very uh extensive resume yeah i mean i officiated a wedding uh i've auctioneered i've done yeah you know i'm kind of the i like to say yes to things Mm -hmm. and try them out and if i'm terrible at it it's great learning experience like i love beer league hockey and i love golf but i am definitely not the best and i love going out there because i feel pretty like i feel very like confident in my art career mm-hmm. and i know that there's millions of artists who are better than me like and that's fine i'm comfortable with that but i know i know what i'm doing but in hockey and golf like i could just be outclassed i mean you just have someone who's a much better skater much more physical hockey player and they make you look like terrible yeah and i think you got to go out there and you got to get your teeth knocked in a little bit in something if you're really good at something you have to do something you're not good at and keeps you keeps you balanced keeps you humble definitely do you ever play over at the links and in, in drigs oh sure yeah I freaking love. So we did their marketing two seasons ago. Links is tight. Yeah, I love. I'm gonna go. I'm getting a lesson from Brent on Saturday. Actually, Brent's a good dude. Yeah. Yeah, and that's a place where if uh, you know, I've had one round there where I finished with one ball, which was miraculous. Yeah. Because literally the best I've ever shot there is like a 91. So that's like one ball when you shoot 91. I've lost 12 in a round there. I mean, when you're off your money and that gets wilderness, but link style golf, beautiful people chilling with their dogs, super cool. Like, dope yeah, place. that's what gets me there. Like be able to be able to just bring the dogs on a four hour walk oh, is insane. It's, it's, it's so cool. And you have a view of the grand, like 
Great views. Like I end up being like I'll just wear normal golf attire and I'm overdressed. Like everyone's in like jeans and like flip flops. <laughs> yeah, like it's cool, but it's like if you want to have a serious round, you can still do that because some of the holes are pretty freaking gnarly. Oh, they're very challenging. Uh, you know, it's a great. Car- There's not a bad course in the valley. I mean, like their tributary uh, Teton Reserve. My buddy Cutter's the new pro over there, and they're doing amazing things. I love. They have the Lebowski uh, two man scramble tournament. And I go hard to the paint on that, you know, yeah. like when Maud was wearing the Viking thing. So I like cross dress for it and I have like a gold dress and like the Viking helmet with the braids and stuff. You're going to hate this, but I have not seen that either. You know what? Uh, you know, it, th- this is an education thing for these the youth of today. <laughs> you know, again, I'm born in 80, so I get it. Uh, but like, yeah, so that's a dope tournament. And they, they drive around and they have like uh, the carts will have um, white Russians, which yeah. is you know, at the crux of the whole Lebowski experience. Um, but anyway, yeah, again, I'm I know, I know the white Russian thing. I know, I know the character, like the robe, but I've never seen the movie. This is what happens when you get older. It's like, you're getting interviewed and they're like, Oh, I have to ask my grandpa about that. I'm like, come on, man. (laughs) (laughs) Awesome, man. Um, Okay, so we're coming up on an hour and 45 minutes. Oh, my God. I If you're still here, I bless your soul, you know? <laughs> no, we get I, – I get the, the the platform that I use to, to post this, like, shows me when people drop off. Yeah. And people stay for surprisingly a long time. Well, that's, that's crazy, man. Well, I really appreciate you having me on the show. I enjoyed talking with you. Yeah, definitely. It was awesome. Um, tell the people where they can find you, your website, social media, anywhere else they can find you. Of course. Uh, I'm easy peasy, man. Uh, it's just Borbay, B-O-R-B-A-Y. So Borbay.com, Borbay on Insta, Borbay on Twitter, Borbay on Facebook. But on Facebook, mostly just use my given name, Jason, uh, B-O-R-B-E-T. Christian, your Christian name. My Christian name. Because, you know, uh, I have to say that, you know, engagements on Facebook fan pages is garbage and it's not worth it you have to pay to reach your own people i digress so just borbay everything and um you know i love to if you comment on something i will comment back i i never ignore a comment so Mm -hmm. yeah definitely um yeah check him out if you can't find him uh message me and i will direct you over to him um and uh, i think that's it well thank you dog i appreciate your time thank thank you for having me on your show all right everyone that's an episode have a good week (laughs) 